Welcome to Dutch Podcast. This is Ryan Clark. And this is Nathan Overo. And Shannon Etheridge. And on this episode, Ryan got to interview Linda K. Klein over her book called Pure. And I'm very jealous of this because this book seems to be articulating a whole, a whole generation of us trying to grapple with sexuality. Now, are, are you pulling a Nicolas Cage there, Nate? Are you like, how did I not write that book? <laughs> yeah, you know, I kind of am. But, you know, I'm more of a filmmaker than a writer, so I can't, I can't complain too much. But, yeah, I kind of am. I'm like, dang it! She beat me! I also was jealous that Ryan got to have this conversation. I'm just so proud of this woman for speaking out. I'm sure that she got all kinds of flack. I remember listening to the conversation about how many years did it take her to actually get this book out into the marketplace? Mm-hmm. Like yeah, eight, 12 eight years or something. Well, yeah. eight and more in 12, I think 12 years total. Um, is that right, Ryan? Yeah. Well, in her subtitle, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, very personal. And as you'll hear in this interview, she also tells the story of some other people whose lives were impacted by purity culture. Yeah, so let's jump into this interview with Linda K. Klein in her book, Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. All right, uh, welcome to Touch Podcast. This is Ryan, and I am speaking today with Linda K. Klein, author of Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement That Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Linda, thank you so much for being on Touch Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love this book. I love this book. Thank you so much for writing it. And I'm so excited that um, it is getting some really great press because there are a lot of people out there who are clueless about the evangelical movement and the the purity movement within evangelical America. So thank you for writing it. Mm, yeah, no, I think you're right. It's, it's kind of incredible that, you know, I've been working on this book for the last 12 years and I don't think that there was an openness to really looking at these issues when I started this, you know, or even, even seven years ago, even three years ago, um, you know, but things started to shift about three years ago. And, uh, and now it feels like, feels like we're ready to really have these conversations and talk about the impact of the purity movement and the purity industry and the shame that it's created and what we all need to do to heal. Yeah. And we, we certainly found that out. Um, gr- I agree completely. We certainly found that out last year when, we launched our podcast talking about um, True Love Waits, you know, the SBC version of the in, p- program for the purity movement, and all of how complicated and deep the whole purity movement went, both personally in people's individual lives and the impact and the um, shame that we'll talk about that you bring up in your book, as well as how it, the tendrils of that movement uh, had worked itself into the political landscape in America, into the public education, the absence-only public education, um, how it had affected parents and pastors, not only just you know the teens and young adults. So, um, yeah. So why does a a, a publisher, a big-time publisher, pick up this topic and say, besides the book being wonderfully written and extremely compelling? stories in it of the folks that you've interviewed as well as your own story why do you think like this is the time that 
sort of a, a broader audience is li is interested in listening to this? Yeah, you know, I mean, this is a unique moment in time because certainly the purity message has been around for a really long time. Um, you know, you could find it in many different religious groups and many different secular groups. The idea of sexual purity is not new, but something really unique happened in the early 1990s in this country. Um, and that is that the white American evangelical church launched this purity movement um, that developed quickly into a purity industry with purity rings and purity balls and purity pledges and purity curricula, et cetera, um, which your listeners know, um, you know quite well, as I understand it. Um, you know, so many of us are now coming of age. I went into seventh grade in 1991. So I was really there for the beginning of the purity movement. And when I talk with other people who are doing this work, many of them, you know, were raised in the early phases of the purity movement as well. And, you know, as we become older, I think that's when we start to realize the effects of the movement. You know, certainly I, when I was a young person, um, started to identify some of the effects, but also was really um, struggling because I also believed the purity message, right? That if I was totally non-sexual before marriage, um, that I would have a blissful, amazing, um, shame-free sexual life after marriage. And, you know, as people begin to live into their adult lives, you start to see um, real-life experience challenge this notion, challenge this myth that we were taught. And I think that's why there's a, a, new, a new willingness to discuss these things, because the reality is, is that we have now lived into story <laughs> long enough to know that the story isn't true, a high number of us, you know, keeping in mind that um, evangelicals are 25% of the country, you know, so there's a large population of people who um, are challenging these notions, not because they're doing some, you know, grand um, exegesis or some grand deconstruction, simply because their lived experience tells them something different than they were raised to believe. Yeah, the way my wife likes to say it is that, so growing up, um, we're about the same age, so we were doing the early 90s, uh, True Love Waits, with the pledge cards and bringing them forward to the church, and um, uh, my wife likes to say, though, that uh, there's no magic fairy dust that comes down on your wedding day that suddenly sex sex is okay, like, that. there's not a switch that just flips magically at your wedding that like all these years years of sex is bad uh programming doesn't get undone you know with a, a couple bible verses and a and a corny song <laughs> and a wedding dress right indeed yeah i mean one of the things that was so fascinating for me because i really started this project you know because of my own personal pain and because of my own fears about never being healthy, never having a healthy relationship if I didn't um, really um, uh, you know, break free from this sexual shame and, and fear and anxiety that was in many ways controlling my life. And what was really shocking to me and what started me on this, you know, 12 year, you know, pilgrimage, if you will, right, um, to the stories of others that became sort of sacred texts for me um, was, was um, starting to talk with some of the people that I grew up with in my home church, you know, and calling up people who were raised as girls specifically and um, talking to this huge variety of people, you know, to your 
point, people, you know, who had gotten married and done everything just right, you know, had waited until their wedding day to, um, in some cases, have their first kiss even, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who were living as virgins and virtuously, you know, not engaging in any sexual activity, people who had chosen to, um, you know, not to have sex outside of marriage, which I would say is equally virtuous, but, you know, we were taught was not, Um, you know, so there was this huge range of people who had made different choices with their lives. And yet when I got into deep conversation with them, what I learned is that we were all struggling with the same um, kind of sexual fear, sexual shame, sexual anxiety, which for many of us was manifesting physically in our bodies in ways that mimicked classic PTSD. Um, And that was startling to me. Because, you know, that that was the big aha. That was the moment that I said, I can know for sure that I am not um, experiencing these things because I am shameful, which is what the church had taught me. You know, if you leave evangelicalism, which I did in my early 20s because of these issues, um, you know, if you uh, begin to explore sexually, you know, you're going to have problems because these are, uh, you know, shameful activities. Um, But when I started to talk to other people who had done everything just the way they were supposed to or were doing everything the way they were, quote unquote, supposed to, um, you know, that and realized that actually their lives were mirrors of my own, you know, the details being different, but the core experiences of sexual shame and fear and anxiety being the same, um, you know, that's when, that's, that was the beginning of my healing journey and what, um, what began sort of this deeper interview process to really understand what we were being taught, how it was impacting us and why. Yeah. And do you remember like your, the aha moment that when you realized that it wasn't just you and perhaps the women you went to church with, but that this was sort of widespread. This is, this isn't just my community. This isn't just our association of churches. This is like everywhere. How, how did you come to realize that? Yeah. So, you know, before I started doing the interviews in my hometown, um, uh, there were about five years where I was struggling with this on a completely personal level. Um, and I was having conversations with a broad range of people. The majority of the conversations were with people I grew up with in my hometown, but I was also talking with people who were raised in other parts of the country. Um, you know, in some cases who were raised in other countries, but countries that had been, um, uh, delivered the same messages that we were raised with. Um, and so, you know, so it, it was something that I sort of had an inkling of, you know, even before I started doing the interviews. Um, but, you know, ultimately I decided I needed to have some sense of what was happening in my community, you know, before I could understand the scale. So, um, so I was 26 and I packed up my, you know, car and I moved across the country and I moved really close to my hometown and, uh, and started talking to the girls that I was raised with who are now adults um, in coffee shops and in bars and in living rooms around my hometown. And toward the end of that year, you know, I knew that, uh, I knew that it was clear that there was such a big percentage of us um, who are experiencing this in this community. You know, about half the people I talked to in that year told me stories um, that were startlingly similar to my own. Um, And, you know, and I would, I don't believe that that necessarily means that only half were experiencing those things, right? That's the half who, who told me about them. Um, you know, and, and so then that sort of led me to believe, okay, I've heard these stories from other people around the country as well. Um, if it's this high of a percentage in my hometown, how big must this be 
you know, internationally and, and first within this nation. Um, so I started, you know, to start to talk to people who were raised around the country and, um, and really focused on the sort of white American evangelical culture I was raised in and on girls experience um, within that culture, simply because, uh, you know, it was such a massive population <laughs> mm-hmm. that that felt like, um, you know, I needed some controls, right? I needed to, to have some sort of um, ideas around, uh, you know, how I could limit the understanding of this. But, you know, the whole time I was having conversations with other people as well. I was having conversations with men. I was having conversations with people of color. I was having conversations with people who were raised in other parts of the country. And so I was hearing anecdotally that it was also impacting a, a much wider population, um, you know, though my, my primary focus was really trying to understand how communities like mine um, you know, around this country were impacting people and, you know, started to understand uh, how very not alone I was and how very not unique my community was. You know, something that I sometimes say is I had this realization that the thing that was most extraordinary about my story was just how ordinary it was. And one of the things you talk about in the book is about how many people had not told anybody who had they had just held in their stories, their, uh, kept them to themselves and tried to sort it out between within the couple and then or with uh, maybe eventually a, a counselor of some kind. And you talk about the sex shame brain trap. Um, will, you, will you describe for our listeners what that is? And, um, and I'm curious about... Um, if you noticed any, and and one and part of that is too that it seems like in your book with, for you and for the other f- stories you tell, uh, you you talk about there's does seem to be always this kind of freak out that that happens or some some sort of freezing up or disembodied sex or panic attacks or something that happens. Um, could you talk a bit about what that sex sex shame brain trap is and the event that happens um, with that? Yeah. So the sex shame brain trap, um, you know, there's a common adage in neurobiology called Hebb's axiom that states that neurons that fire together, wire together. So in short, that means that if you, um, you know, fire a circuit for a particular neuropathway um, at the same time as another one simultaneously over and over and over again, eventually those two neurocircuits become fused. So, um, so for example, they've done some research where they've um, sewn the um, two fingers um, of a monkey together. And so they were forced to move together and then ultimately unsewed them. And the monkey still moved the second finger with the first because those brain maps had been merged. Um, So there's something similar that researchers find can happen around concepts as well. And I believe that's exactly what has happened to many of us who were raised in purity culture, um, which by the way, you know, uh, is really intense within the evangelical church because of the purity movement and industry, but is certainly in no ways exclusive to it. You know, I think we, our culture at large is a purity culture. Um, You know, so basically what happens in a purity culture is that you're teaching people about sex, about their bodies, about sexuality, using shame as your primary teaching tool. So when I say shame, I'm talking about um, not bashfulness or shyness, uh, this research 
game, this feeling you are something bad or people will think you are something bad, which you can make someone more likely to experience if you continuously shame them around that issue. So define them in their totality as bad or as people seeing you as bad because of that thing. So when you look at the purity teachings that we were raised with, they are um, heavily relying on shame as their primary teaching tool. So, you know, we didn't le learn about sex in the church very, you know, there are very few of us who grew up within the purity movement who really learned about sex there. Um, you know, what we learned about was us. We learned about um, whether we would be pure or impure. You know, whether we would be good or bad, holy or unholy, worthy or unworthy, able to function well in this community or lucky if, um, you know, someone would ever accept us and love us in this community. So it is these embodied teachings, right? So you're essentially shaming people over and over and over with this messaging. And I believe that that creates in these early adolescent years um, when your brain is really, really uh, plastic around sexual development, it fuses these neurocircuits together, the sex and the shame or sexuality or the body or whatever it is. So that ultimately, you know, when you become an adult, you know, just firing one automatically fires the other. And that's what, you know, what you were talking about in terms of a number of people having physical reactions to sex and sexuality. I don't think that everybody I've talked to, you know, has experienced um, that necessarily, but it's incredibly common, mm -hmm. um, you know, for people to experience shame in association with um, their sexuality or their perceived sexuality. Sometimes people experience it, you know, a, a number of women have talked about just looking in the mirror and seeing you know, their curves and experiencing so much shame that they're breaking down into tears just looking at themselves. You know, that's, not even, that's not even sexual expression, right? But it's what we've been taught about our sexual selves. Um, you know, other people are you know, trying to um, be intimate with a partner and as you mentioned, either are disembodied, they disconnect, which shame makes us do. Shame makes us disconnect so we don't have to feel the shame as deeply. Um, you, you know, or makes them, you know, uh, have these quote unquote freakouts, which is a term that I used when I was experiencing them and that many of my interviewees, as turns out, use as well. It's actually kind of a common term, you know, which for some people, um, you know, meant, you know, for me, for example, my eczema coming out and just, you know, scratching myself until I bled because I was so anxious. Whereas for other people, you know, they're actually having panic attacks and going to the hospital. Um, so huge range in how this can live in your body um, and how this can manifest um, physically. And the other thing that I'll just quickly say about that is because a lot of these ideas are taught in the church for a lot of people, one of the other places that I see people experiencing um, physicalized um, shame um, that isn't as common but has come up a lot in my interviews is walking into a church. You know, people talking about how they can't go into a church without breaking down into uncontrollable tears. Um, and sometimes they can identify why that is, and sometimes they can't. Um, but the actual place of the shaming, the place of that traumatic messaging um, becomes a holder of um, re-traumatization for them. Speaking of trauma, I was struck by the, in the Tigris chapter, um, you mentioned the books, The Act of Marriage and Intended for Pleasure, two books I have on my shelf that we were gifted when we were engaged. I still have these these books on my shelf, along with uh, uh, a rather austere collection of um, uh, Christian sex um, 
advice uh, through the years. Um, and I was struck, though, in that, in that chapter about um, the theme of how men's failure to respect um, their mates' sexual boundaries during, during the dating and also in the relationship, like how, how that is traumatizing um, and has, um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about like what you, what, what you discovered in terms of the impact on the psyche of women, women in particularly, particularly, um, and, you know, in terms of prevalence and intensity of this, um, because I, as being a quote unquote good Christian guy, I, I am also guilty of feeling you know, back in the day when I was dating of thinking like, how far is too far? And how far can I get her to go? And I don't, was never, I was never aggressive, but, but it, in youth group and in call in our college ministry, it was always the assumption that, and I remember in a Bible study, one of the women asking this question is like, why is it always the woman who makes the guy stop? So you mentioned in that, that there is this presupposition that causes a, causes trauma in relationships. So I'll stop rambling and let you <laughs> speak into that from from your book. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, this is a core tenant of purity teachings that, um, you know, everybody is expected to be pure, but that, um, you know, men and boys are, uh, you know, have a greater level of uh, sexual desire, sexual want, et cetera. And therefore women and girls are ultimately responsible for maintaining the sexual purity of all people, of themselves, of their partners, of the society. Um, and when I say the society, what I mean is, you know, dressing in a way, walking in a way, talking in a way, doing everything they can to make sure that nobody has any sexual thoughts or feelings about them, right? And there's sort of this idea that if girls and women would just you know, <laughs> just be completely non-sexual and never elicit a sexual thought that we would not have any of the problems with assault or abuse, you know, or uh, which we never talk about, um, you know, and consensual sex, which we talk about all the time. Um, but, you know, the idea is that if women would just take care of themselves, all of these things would go away. Um, which is highly problematic and I think creates a, a tremendous amount of confusion, not just among men in the church, but I think, uh, you know, again, because I think we, American culture is a purity culture. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is very common in society as well. So there was a study that found that many male college students report that they would never commit rape um, and never had commit rape. Um, but a majority of participants in one study said that they would coerce someone into sex by holding them down. Right. Um, you know, and and that they said the majority also said that if a woman said no, that they would consider it her just being coy, you know, and not necessarily a real no. You know, these are things that were sort of, you know, are part of our culture. Right. Um, and, you know, and that another study found that men often confuse sexual interest with consent to have sex. So there's all kinds of ambiguity that's happening in these in these um, even survivors, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about assault now, and that's a little bit different than what we're talking about, but it's part sure. of the spectrum, right? Um, you know, even survivors of assault and abuse are often confused by these things, you know, and 35% and say that they don't report because they're not sure that the other person intended harm, um, you know, and if they didn't intend harm, was it really abuse? And so we live in this sort of ambiguous world where because we give women and girls um, the responsibility to maintain all sexlessness. It confuses everyone, right? You've got, you've got 
you know, people justifying behavior, whether they're survivors or perpetrators, you've got um, all kinds of coercion, coercion that's happening, you know, it, in all sorts of different levels that we're starting to hear more about now, you know, through the Me Too movement, not just about rape and assault, but about coercion as a, you know, a larger conversation. Um, you know, and this does create problems in marriage, you know, whether you are marrying the person that, um, that you felt coerced by, or whether you're marrying someone else, you know, it creates, um, uh, it can create, you know, some real challenges in the marriage. But to your point about why, you know, you brought this all up in the first place, you know, in the book, I point to um, a lesson in the act of marriage in which um, a couple comes to their, um, to the, to the co-author of the book, um, their pastor in the example, I believe, and, um, and says, you know, we're experiencing sexual difficulties. And the pastor says, well, what are you experiencing? And she says, well, I have a lot of sexual shame. And, uh, and he says, well, what did you do wrong before you got married? And what comes out is that he had been sexually um, coercing her throughout their courtship and that she had felt that she was constantly resisting him and that that had just you know, continued on into their marriage bed. And the pastor, you know, didn't have anything to say about the man coercing her, <laughs> didn't have anything to say about the fact that, you know, that it was creating, um, you know, uh, that he was creating, you know, a, a, a situation that didn't always feel safe to her, um, you know, but instead said, well, you, you know, need to confess, wife, um, not having held your sexual boundaries well enough. And if you would confess that sin of allowing that coercion, you know, before marriage, then you're going to have a blissful sexual life after marriage, right? Um, so it's, it's a continuation of this same idea, um, which is deeply problematic, you know, across the spectrum, whether we're talking about, um, and I, and actually, you know, I, I want to say that, you know, everybody is getting a raw deal on this and everyone's getting really unhelpful information on this. Um, and it creates uh, an un- healthy and unsafe environment for us all. Um, you know, I have a, I have a friend uh, who started a rape crisis hotline. And I remember her once telling me, um, sitting down with me, we were just chatting um, over a meal. And she said, I've started this rape crisis hotline. And right now I'm getting more calls from people, especially men, telling me about a situation and asking me whether they raped someone than I'm getting calls from people um, at, telling me that they've been raped. Wow. So, right. Wow. It blew me away. It blew yeah. me away. Right. And now I don't know if that's a trend, um, you know, in, in other hotlines, but, but that was what she was experiencing at that point. You know, the other night um, I was working on some stuff and I had uh, the TV on just for some background noise. And I put on, I saw that, uh, you know, because Burt Reynolds passed away, Smokey and the Bandit was like, you know, on Netflix, it was like, you might like to watch. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love that movie when I was a kid. So I put Smokey and the Bandit on. And, I, you know, I'm started doing some social media stuff and making notes and working on my calendar. And multiple times, I, in, I hear something sort of to the side and I look up, you know, and there's Burt Reynolds, you know, what, what I would consider sexually harassing Sally Fields, right? But as a kid, you know, as a 10-year-old kid, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid who would have just loved to just put that tape in and watch that movie all the time, like that, um, to come from that kind of mindset to being hearing now, like, having been educated now on what consent is, on 
coercion on um on true mutuality and relationships like there is a part of me that like that kind of makes sense to me that like guys um you know the locker room we all agree that the locker room conversation is not appropriate but and the behavior that might result from that kind of talk is not appropriate but then yeah to be in this have so much ambiguity about what does it mean to be a man what is true masculinity and what is what is mutuality in relationships and how do i relate to women if i'm not supposed to be sort of macho and coercive and i'm using coercive not in a sort of physical sense but in a sort of could also be right coercion could also be manipulative um telling people you love them when you don't love them and and you know that kind of thing well for church, the, a lot of our listeners, we have a lot of seminary-trained uh, ministers, lay ministers, church leaders, Sunday school teachers. And um, what advice do you have for churches um, and church leaders on talking about sex in their in their communities? Hmm. So I am a big believer that the first thing that has to happen um, is that there needs to be a period of confession. Now, I know that that's a trigger word for a lot of people, but because I'm talking to church leaders, I'm hoping that this will be a language that's useful and not triggering. Um, so, uh, you know, the reality is, is that churches can be incredible healers around this work, but that that can't happen unless they um, take responsibility and confess for what has come before. Um, many churches and church leaders, whether they personally need to confess or whether they need to confess on behalf of their uh, denomination or on behalf of their community um, leadership, you know, et cetera, need to confess the sin of commission. Having taught these things, you know, even if they thought it was really helpful, <laughs> even if they thought it was really good, even if they had the best of intentions, you know, they need to own the reality that, um, that, that people's lives have been harmed by this, you know. And some people, uh, you know, do need to confess the sin of omission, that they remain silent on these issues and allowed young people to be um, taught uh, things that were deeply harmful to them without countering those teachings, without saying, no, that's not helpful. And that's something that I, I think, you know, in my book, you remember the um, moment where I was a, a, a ninth grade girls group leader in the church. And, you know, much of what I was doing in that moment and that I wrestle with today was committing a sin of omission. You know, I was in a context where I was supposed to tell these girls these shaming messages that I was raised with myself and that I knew were hurtful, that were hurting my life in that very moment, you know, and I couldn't bring myself to repeat those shaming messages. I couldn't bring myself to say, yes, this is what you should be doing. However, when they came to me and told me that others gave them those shaming messages, I also couldn't bring myself to say, that's so wrong. <laughs> if my life is any, is any indication, it's going to be hurtful and painful for your future. You know, instead, what I did is I tried to walk this safe line and I told them, you know, take what those people are saying to you with a grain of salt, uh, take what 
you know, whatever you learn in this community or in any community with a grain of salt, ask yourself if it makes sense with your lived experience, ask yourself if it makes sense with the, with the, the, in, with your understanding of God, you know, the God that you know, you know, personally, um, you know, ask yourself, uh, if it makes sense with, uh, with what you've heard from others, you know, hold things in tension, you know, so I was really kind of trying to walk this, this, this line where I allowed them to, um, uh, to, to question, which I think was useful. Um, but also I, I, I couldn't bring myself to stand up, you know? Um, and so in many ways, I feel like I was committing the sin of omission, you know, and, and not giving them, um, the tools that I know now that they needed. Um, or not enough of them anyway. So I think that that's the first thing that has to happen. I think that there needs to be a public ownership and a public recognition. I don't think that we can come forward as healers unless we, um, unless we uh, regain the trust of people who are hurt and who need healing. And I think that's how you regain the trust you know, to what we were talking about before about, um, you know, uh, men not being taught that guilt is something that they should be contending with, you know. Um, in the Christian faith, though, you would think that guilt is something that we should be more comfortable with because it is part of our culture. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's part of our culture to confess. Um, and yet, you know, when it comes to the institution, how often do we really confess you know, how often do we really own the fact that our church perhaps, you know, was built by slave labor? Mm-hmm. How often do we own that our church is built on um, ground that was stolen from Native Americans? How often do we own that, you know, in recent history, you know, perhaps even an inclusive church, you know, uh, you know, that there are people who, who were raised in that church who tr- experienced tremendous pain and potentially life-threatening pain, you know, because they were queer within that community and there was no place for them there. You know, so there is a institutional confession. I'm not talking about individuals. I'm not talking about, you know, someone being like, I taught this and I'm so horrible. You know, yes, you know, we need to do confession on an individual level. Um, but moreover, I'm talking about an institutional confession. What does it mean for a church to stand up and to make a public declaration via a sermon or via an event where they say, we have been a part of this and here's, here's how, and, um, and we're not going to do that anymore. Right. Whew. Yeah. I Whew, love can it. You imagine? I love it. Right? Oh let's, my gosh. Let's start it. <laughs> <laughs> and just, and, you know, and the reason, I think many, many of the reasons that people don't do it is because, you know, people in the pews are going to stand up some of them and walk out. Yeah. Because we don't like to feel guilt. Well, and there's a and there are a lot of people whose whose identity is tightly uh, entwined with a particular way, a particular vision of the church and and of America and of our behavior and women's roles, and to and they would and, and yeah they would get up and walk out because they would feel like everything you've told me my whole life and the thing that I still believe you're saying is not true anymore. And, you know, and that it would be trauma. That's traumatizing to them as well. So there that, yeah, that's, there's a process there where you have to be able to say, yeah, this may have worked for you, but this confession is about how it was 
damaging to other people, how it damages and continues to hurt people. So, yes, yeah. yes, it would need to be done. I, you know, here I am, a non-religious leader offering a solution <laughs> that um, that you're like, well, let's actually think about how this plays out. <laughs> so I think, you know, to your point, I think that's uh, yeah. You're saying I'm a little more institutionalized than you are. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a good thing because if we really are talking to religious leaders right now, you know, they need to to hold their entire community. And, um, and of course, that's impossible. Yeah. That's impossible. You know, so, so I think in on the ground, this is, is very, very complicated. And I have a lot of compassion for, um, for people who are making really hard decisions every day as religious leaders about um, who they're going to see, and who they're going to see, but have to say, um, you know, we're not talking to you right now, we're talking to them. And the reality is, is that we have been doing that. We have been, as institutions, making those choices. And too often, we have been choosing um, the people who are uh, loudest to pay attention to, you know, and oftentimes those are not the people in pain. Those are not the survivors. Those are not the sufferers. Those are the people with power because they're loud with power, <laughs> right. you know, power makes you, makes your voice louder. Um, so, so to pretend that we haven't been making these choices all along though, you know, is, is also something that we should not, we should not uh, allow ourselves to, to be comforted by. <laughs> right? yeah. um, but, you know, but the other thing I'll say, and I, you know, I live in uh, New York city, so you heard the sirens going by. So let's take that as a metaphor uh, for, you know, we're talking about hard stuff. We're talking about pain. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about, you know, people dying on this, on, you know, outside our doors. Um, you know, and that is the reality of the impact of, um, of what we do. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we, we stand up and, um, and tell people what God thinks of them. And the impact of that um, is massive, you know, in positive and negative ways. Um, you know, but the reason I say this, you know, is because I think that churches do play a really important role in healing. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that uh, churches should be talking about sex. Um, you know, that, that uh, we have a gap in society um, where we don't have um, a lot of healthy conversations about sexuality and relationships and um, how you um, how you should treat people. And, you know, we, we don't have enough of those conversations going on. And I do think the churches play a very important role in filling that gap. And I also think that churches play an important role in healing the hurt, um, you know, because they have access to the most important tools, you know, in best case scenarios, they have access to a uh, trusted community, you know, trusted supportive community and to reflective tools that allow people to do the deconstruction and the reconstruction to go from an unhealthy um, understanding of sexuality in the body to a healthy one um, via meditation, conversation, um, you know, reflection, reflective tools, you know, um, helpful theology, you know, different things like that. So, so I, I, I think that churches are uh, really, really not only um, you know, do I think that there's a, a holy call for churches to step forward on this? But I think there's a, a, a useful logistical thing. You know, I think they're very well equipped to do this work in many ways. If we can, if we can move, in, move through the hard stuff, we have the tools to create the healing. 
So Linda K. Klein, thank you so much for being on Touch Podcast. Her book is Pure Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Thanks again. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation. I have as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Ryan, thanks so much for leading that conversation with Linda K. Klein. Uh, I really applaud her courage because I can only imagine the pushback and the struggle that she had in trying to get a book like this published, but I do like how she labeled that it wasn't the evangelical church that created the shame. It was the movement that had come out of the evangelical church that created the shame because there's, there's a big difference because all of us are capable of creating something that we think could be really, really helpful. But then in hindsight realize, Oh, I, I didn't realize how much that could hurt. So I like that. It doesn't sound as if she's blaming a group of people as much as she's just holding the movement responsible. And I think all of us who've been a part of that movement are ready to take responsibility or we're still just in oblivion as you know, we were for many years, but Nate, I'm just wondering how that conversation hit you. Like, did that trigger anything in you just hearing about her journey and all that she had overcome? Because I know that this can be a sensitive spot for you. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the, what stuck out to me was when she mentioned how, um, I think recently with all the stuff that's happening on the news, there were a lot of calls into rape hotlines that were from men who honestly did not know whether or not they they abused their their partners and i found that to be very true for me and you know when she brought it up i i i just appreciated that she took the time to notice that because as a woman you know I would imagine that a lot of judgment would go to men who have that thought, but she paused on it long enough for me to feel into my own confusion because there were times where that's happened to me. So that was the biggest thing that stuck out to me personally um, from this interview. It, it really, that beat really hit close to home for me. Um, Ryan, what did anything like, what stuck out to you? Well, I, I loved the conversation I had with her. There's more of that conversation um, that doesn't make it in this episode that'll be in the extras um, where we go a little more into Me Too. And um, yeah, and it's interesting that our conversation went that way. I'm, I was struck in the same way, Nate, that um, I remember when my wife and I were having problems early on in our marriage, and it was related to this sexual shame and the messages from the church was um and we had internalized from the church and um how hard each of us were trying to be a good christian and it was just and the marriage wasn't working and sex wasn't working and um and everything we tried i think because it was shame because we are so shamed in our sexual outlook that we Anything, any kind of advice we try to give each other or even like telling our own stories, we would, uh, the only thing we could hear was, um, and we were so hurt, the only thing we could hear was like condemnation from the other person. Criticism. Criticism, yeah. Everything sounded like criticism. And um, it really took us a while to relearn how to communicate and create, you know, a, 
a rare a trust bubble if you, uh for lack of a better term where we could really trust that the other person was just that we were being loving toward each other and wanting all the best and that there was no aggression or passive aggression and yeah that was that that's an important yeah and and if there are couples who are still struggling and they feel like shame might be at the at the core of what's been going on in their relationship with their dysfunction is that um you know learning how to communicate and rebuilding that intimacy is probably the first the first thing they'll have to do so rather than hearing your partner's feedback as criticism you had to develop an understanding that they're trying to teach you how to be their dream lover and isn't that a lesson that we all want our partners to teach us? Like, teach me how to be your dream lover because that's what you—that's what we all want to be. And so, yeah, that, that also takes a lot of courage for someone to say, hey, this is, I didn't particularly enjoy this or I would really enjoy it if you would do this more or this faster or whatever. Like, that, that's really valuable information to have. Yes, and, <laughs> and not take that, that cor- if there's a correction, I'm thinking of like in a lovemaking moment where it's like the hand goes here and not there. <laughs> That's, you know, it takes some ego strength to be able to be like, okay, yeah, yeah, I got this. All right, cool. Yeah, I'm good. Instead of being like, well, if you don't like it, get out of bed, you know. Well, you have to, you do have to approach your partner from the standpoint of, I may know exactly what I want and what I enjoy, but I have to be a student of my wife or my husband. I have to be, I have to be open to learning what, you know, cause what they want and what they enjoy may be totally different than what you enjoy. But let me take it up to a more aerial view for, for a second, guys. Uh, I find it very interesting that um, she really does feel as if the church can play a vital role in the healing process. And I completely agree. And something I had, you know, a comment that I had made on a previous episode about how, you know, maybe it's just, this is hard for churches because, you know, pastors are concerned about losing their job or, or, you know, people getting huffy and leaving over um, that being talked about, SEX being talked about in the church. But what I think is that, um, I think that, well, for example, when I was looking for an SLAA group, I called so many churches asking, do you have a Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous group? And I could not find one in Dallas, but I finally found one. And it was such a lifeline to me. And what I realized through that is that you know, not every church is going to be able to provide this great place of refuge, but you have somebody in your congregation that is willing to lead such a group and willing to make that a, a, a focal point of ministry, maybe just pray about whether God would want your church to be one of those lights in the darkness where people can come and, and sift through their issues. Because my concern is that churches who really aren't very well equipped to do this, if they try to do it, they're going to wind up hurting people worse than helping them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. That's a really, wow. I mean, it. My, I, I'm totally agreement with what you said. And to add to that, what's helping me is, you know, the the definition of a church that we understand it in culture, and and a definition of church with with, with how it was intended, right? And I think the environment of a church culturally can be very suffocating for the conversation of sexuality. Um, 
but to find that oikos, to find that community for the purpose of having that conversation, even though it does not happen inside a church, that is as holy and I think desperately needed so that that raw conversation can be had and all this healing can happen. Well, and I, yeah, and I think that the church, generally speaking, does have all the resources to help people heal. Um, but like you were saying, Shannon, the church, the churches in my town or my neighborhood or my state or in, in my denominational network, they may not have the capacity to help. Yeah, I, I really am looking forward to what the next movement, what the next era will be. In fact, I have an interview coming up with Reverend Angie McCarty that's going to touch on exactly this subject of, okay, now that we recognize the damage that the abstinence movement has done. How do we move forward? Kind of like we're doing with season two with desire. How can we evolve into a healthier model of sex education within the church? So be, Ooh, be on the lookout yeah. for that. Yeah. Lots of exciting episodes coming up. That sounds juicy. Uh, as well as our conversations from the Justice Sex Conference in Nashville, Tennessee in partnership with the Alliance of Baptists, a conversation started by the Alliance of Baptists. Thank you for listening to Touch Podcast. Uh, you can find out more about Touch Podcast, watch videos, uh, read blogs, and other reflections. Listen to episodes from Season 1 of Touch Podcast at touchpodcast.com. Subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to tell your friends. Don't forget to connect with us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, touch underscore cast. This has been Touch Podcast. I'm Nate Navarro. I'm Ryan Clark. And I am Shannon Etheridge, and we love you for listening. I get chills when you say that.